0: Namo Tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambodasa. Namo tassa
1: bhagavato arahato sammasambodasa.
0: Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Om-i- Mo the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, uh, is it on? I believe so. But yes, it is. That's what it said. Yeah. Um, welcome to our sutra lecture tonight. This is December 17th, 2011. We're here in Berkeley, California, uh, looking into the Flower Garland Sutra's ten grounds chapter, and we're on the third ground. So let's start out by reciting the name of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and invokes some spiritual presence. <laughs> Please turn to page forty eight and forty nine. Sister Boss or Jodier. on the uh, second paragraph It begins uh Buddha rushi guancha liao zhi yi Buddha rushi
1: rushi
0: guancha liao zhi yi
1: Wancha
0: all right over to the right after the bodhisattva has contemplated and thoroughly understood in this way he increases
1: his diligent search for the proper dharma
0: he increases his diligent search for the proper dharma and his practice by day and night he wishes only to hear the dharma. By day and
1: night he wishes only to hear
0: the dharma. Delight in the dharma. Delight in the dharma. Enjoy the dharma. Enjoy
1: the dharma. Rely upon the dharma.
0: Rely upon the dharma. Follow the dharma. Follow the dharma. Understand the dharma. Understand the dharma. Accord with the dharma. Accord with the dharma. Reach the dharma. Reach the dharma. Stay in the dharma. Stay in the and cultivate, the and cultivate the
1: Dharma.
0: All right, um, we're here in the the third ground of the, the Bodhisattva's ten grounds, and we're um, kind of getting the momentum going into the third ground. This each of these ten has a um, pattern in them, and they start out similarly. There's there's a uh, Certain things that have to be satisfied. And then the unique flavor of each of the grounds comes out. And each one is different. They uh, roughly, if you want to know how they're structured, they're roughly based on the paramitas, the the, uh, Mahayana version of the six and the ten. So this is number three. So that means it accords with, which one? Giving precepts and patience. The patience paramita. So... In, in this one, and we're right at that point, the Bodhisattva starts, we start to see the, the uh, why the Bodhisattva has to be patient. What's that got to do with the third ground? That's starting to come out now. And in each of these grounds, they give a situation. There's a little vignette, there's a little story that is unique to each one. And uh, then there's a resolution. Then comes the kind of the um, contents, the real substance of, of each ground that the Bodhisattva uh, is going to challenge himself, herself to practice. And then there's uh, usually a, a resolution, uh, some sort of exhortation. And then there's the refrain. And uh, the refrain is the same in each of the ten. And it has to do with, there are certain similes that come up. There's things that the Bodhisattva can do seeing numbers of Buddhas in the first and second ground the Bodhisattva sees a number of Buddhas the third, fourth and on there's more Buddhas to see because he's progressing so we're in that kind of momentum building stage in our ground and what has happened? The Bodhisattva took a look with wisdom at the things of the world saw that they fall apart and then realized that people get attached to them and then hurt because when they, things fall apart, break up we, our attachments get tweaked they get tested and it hurts because we make these emotional bonds to things so seeing this, the bodhisattva then felt empathy he said, ah, oh, boy, there's lots of suffering going on here and, and I uh, would love to uh, find a way to end that for the beings who are hurting so bad and last week, uh, he gave us the method his, and what he's going to do. And the sum, the result of the method was, go learn more. Go learn. Learning is the key. Learning what? Learning the Dharma. That's the key. By learning the Dharma, the Bodhisattva believes that he or she will be able to make a difference to the people who are hurting, whom he would like to help out. So, Dharma study is the, is the key. Now, uh, that's right where we are so after the Bodhisattva after the Bodhisattva in this way meaning thoroughly methodically step by step um, takes a look he contemplates the way things are and then he gets it he understands having done so so you can see there's there's uh, uh, steps to take there, there's a, there are phases there are stages that you go through this. pay you fa, He doubles his resolve, his energy to study the zheng the right Dharma, the proper Dharma, the, the correct method. So, um, the Bodhisattva's got his fire up. He is very interested in learning now. He has really become Vigorous. Yeah, in one far. Day and night, he only wants to. And here's a list of ten things. We get ten verbs that that happen. One is hearing. He wants to hear the Dharma. Um, the the Buddha in various places in the Could we drop that bottom level just a bit? I uh, hear it bouncing back at me. Okay. The yeah, perfect. The um in various places throughout the, the Mahayana canon the Buddha um, talks about how hearing is the, is the way we learn so to learn is wen ting wen. Wen. You, you hear the ear is the way that we get information he says not seeing interestingly enough so uh, that word to hear shows a door with an ear the actual character for the ear so you stick your ear in the door and you learn something. Now that doesn't mean sneaky. That doesn't mean eavesdropping. It's, you're in the door. You're not like outside the door listening, right? The Bodhisattva is not sneaking his uh, his knowledge. He's inside the door, but he's he goes through the door and listens. He's got his his uh, uh, he's got his his ears open as who the Buddha, bodhisattvas, and good and wise advisors. Dharma friends, Kalyanamitra, speak the Dharma. He hears it, so that's the first one. Wunfa. Shiva is happy. He is happy about the Dharma. When he hears these teachings, he is delighted because he knows that every single thing that he gets, he's going to be able to heal. He's going to be able to cure. He's going to be able to fix what's wrong with the people he cares about. Lo fa, he's delighted. He he is he is joyful he enjoys what he's what he's learning for the same reason because the the clearer he is about it the more he'll be able to bring it back when the time comes to teach eva he depends on it he counts on it he puts other things aside he invests in the dharma that he's learning Um, Saifa, he follows, literally. He follows the Dharma. He um, does what it says. When he has a choice between following emotion or following the method, he goes with the method. Um, and boy, that's a commitment because what we usually go with is habit, what feels good. Habit usually means the path of least resistance. It's the rare individual who jumps into the cold shower every morning joyfully, knowing that this is good for good for me, so I jump in the cold shower. Um, it's hard to do that. We, what we like to do is, what's easy is rolling over. You know, and then click. You know, later. We hit snooze on the alarm. Um, I always remember the, uh, the uh, police captain in Taiwan who was famous not only in his family, but also among his, his uh, what, his uh, underlings, his, his, um, s- s- his officers and enlisted police. He was famous because why? What did he do? Every single morning, day and night, uh, strike that, every single morning, every day of the year, Week in, week out, there we go. Month by month, year by year, he was famous for in the morning, regardless of whether it was a chilly Taiwanese winter or a hot muggy summer, he would go out, turn on, he'd take his shirt off and go out in the backyard and turn on the cold tap and take a bucket, fill it full of water, and go one, two, three. Like that, and douse himself with a cold water. And everybody would go <laughs> Just, just thinking about that every day. That was his, his gung fu, was going and tossing a bucket of water in his head. And it's cold in Taiwan and muggy, especially in the north. It's cold and damp and chilly. So, um, damp is the word I wanted, Not muggy. It's, it's very uh, moist. And um, when, when you get uh, doused with cold water like that, you better have. Good blood circulation or else you're going to get sick. Well, he didn't get sick as a result. He was really healthy. He goes, whoosh, every day. But um, that's not easy to do. And to, to be able to make cultivation a habit, going against the grain instead of the path of least resistance to habit, what feels good, that's hard. If you sleep fa... You can do that, but not always. Sometimes, when you sayfa, in order to meet the dharma, you have to go soft, as the Buddha did when he dropped his starvation diet. All right? For example, if you decide that you're going to be, if you decide that because you're cultivating the bodhisattva precepts, you're going to work with your diet or if you're you're going to cut back in food, um, you do it gradually if you're going to succeed. Any change that happens in a hurry or suddenly usually will result in its opposite. You go the other way and binge instead of making a wholesome change. Um, just because this, we are a living system. We're an organic living system. And they, like all living things, we, we change naturally if, we're, if the change is going to be permanent. Just the way autumn slowly came to winter. We're really close to the equinox. We're uh, five days away from the longest night of the year. And it just seems like yesterday when it was July 22nd when we were, it was, it was summer solstice. So uh, funny. That's uh, uh, how quickly the, the year turns. But in general, the shadings from one to the next are gradual. You don't even notice. Um, so habits that we change, especially something as organic as food, should be done slowly. Should be done step by step, not all of a sudden. So, Svei-fa. jie What does he do? He understands the Dharma. He only wishes to understand it. Having heard it, he wants to get it right. Shunfa, He wants to flow with it, to make it uh, something he can do at speed without leaving the track. You flow the way a river flows with the Dharma. That also doesn't happen quickly. It happens with practice. Tao fa. He wants to reach there. He wants to get to what the Dharma gives him. To he wants to match it. He wants to to uh, to be what do you say in Chinese? You say he wants to to. Uh, Come up to the standard of the Dharma. Zhu-fa, and having done that, he wants to stay there. So he doesn't leave the Dharma. Xing-fa, he wants to practice, to cultivate the Dharma, to actually walk in it like shoes. Okay, ten verbs of things he wants to do. He wants to hear it, be happy with it, delight in it, rely upon it, follow it, understand it, accord with it, match it, reach it, stay in it, dwell in it, and then cultivate it. Now, here's an avatamsaka passage, isn't it? Ten verbs in a row. But the, sec- the, the second word in every case is fa. What in the world is the Dharma, after all? What is this thing that he wants to do these, to, to approach in so many different ways? Um, fa, Dharma, can be in Sanskrit, uh, it's just one sound in English when we translate it. We, we can do it with a capital D or a small d. And it's very different depending on how we understand it. Um, let's work with the, the one that's meant here, which is capital D. Capital D Dharma means the Buddha's teachings. What came out of the Buddha's mouth? The sequential teachings that sometimes were telling farmers how to solve a, a land border dispute, other times telling kings how to cultivate blessings and avoid evil. Other times it was exhortations to monks to stick to the middle way. Other times it was a grand discussion of the cosmos. Right? So these are all teachings of the Buddha. And there are they're many different kinds. At one point the Buddha said, I'm going to tell you about this other Buddha called Amitabha. You all should sit down and listen carefully because you need to know about this. So that was a teaching of the Dharma. Sometimes the Buddha would talk about his past lives. Let me tell you about the time that I was the king of the deer and what happened. So the Buddha was a storyteller. He was a peacemaker. He was uh, a healer of deep pain. Women lose their babies in childbirth and the Buddha lets them understand how that's Possible, and they can still live through that. Um, and then he gives them a deep sense of, of wisdom after that, because every one of those painful experiences is an opportunity to see more deeply into the nature of things, things as they really are. So the Theravada tradition in English uh, frequently calls this uh, the way things are, looking at the nature of things, things the way they actually are. How, the, how things really are beyond our wishes for them. Wishing it would be some, some other way. So things as they actually are. That's the Dharma, capital D. Now, what about small d dharma? There's another way to, to explain the Dharma, small d. Which is, in English, we have a whole bunch of words to describe that. Phenomena. Um, nature. Um... Facts sometimes, reality, right? Small d. Um, so the the sound of the bell is a dharma. That kind of the dharma of sound, meaning the phenomena, that experience of sound. The the dharma of relationships. You know how people work with each other. Um, the um, the dharma of um, baking, for example. Now, that's, I think, the most useful for us definition of what he's saying ten times over, which is method. Method. And Sherfu would most often, when he would say, you know, when he get the dharma, he would say, method of technique, method of practice. And then he would say, everything, everything has its own dharma. Everything has a method. Everything has a right way to do it. And if you understand the right way to do it, and do it correctly, you get a really good result. If you don't know the right way to do it, then it's just a mess, which is, it scatters. It doesn't come to anything. Which is the way things are most often. What would be a perfect example of a method? Mm, you could say growing tomatoes. Probably, anybody have a garden? Anybody, anybody a gardener? Okay, hands up, gardeners. I know some of you are because you work outside. We have some green thumbs in the room, people who are good at gardens, right? Okay, not in December. Most of us are not December gardeners unless you're really hardcore and you've got your startups. In your basement under a heat lamp waiting for March to come. Um, in, Calgary, in Calgary, you all should appreciate California. Boy, if you lived in Calgary and you're a gardener, you appreciate California. What happens in Calgary? You may not grow anything until April 15th. April 15th is the first day anybody dares to take the seedlings outside. So people do. Hardcore gardeners have their starters already this tall, in the basement, by April 15th. And April 15th, boom, everybody runs outside, puts them in the ground quick, waters them. Because that's when the ground thaws, and you can do your first, you pretty much it's not going to freeze. There won't be frost after April 15th. And the other reality of gardening in Calgary is September 15th, the end. It's over. September 15th. So you have April, May, June, July, August. You've got six months growing. And after September, it's done. And that's it. Frost comes, nothing. So <laughs> what this does is it creates a whole fascinating uh, opportunity for people to show their unique qualities and compete with each other. The, the king of gardeners in Calgary was the guy who could grow kiwi fruit in six months in Calgary, kiwi fruit is very hard to grow in California. Uh, it's not. We don't have the conditions. But this guy grew luscious kiwis, and in the time that he had in Calgary, he was the king of gardeners. What is good to grow in Calgary? Potatoes, potatoes, beans, good beans, squash. You can grow squash. You know, other what peppers, but not much else. Pretty primitive. You know, basic. Just throw the seeds out there, and they'll grow under the leaves. That will, that will grow. I have a wonderful Calgary gardening story, which has nothing to do with our lecture. I guess it does. Method. Method technique. But very interesting. We were decided, we, you know, I am an earth ox, and so I have done fanatic gardening in days past. And here we were. We had these, this uh, brick building in an old part of Calgary called Ramsey. That's where we were, this neighborhood called Ramsey. And this, the building that we were in was a corner grocery, actually. And it was a two-story uh, red brick building, leaning. It was so old, it, was, it leaned. And we had the, the, the uh, uh, railroad just about, you know, a stone's throw away. And on the other side of the railroad was the slaughterhouse, just across the Bow River the river that flows through Calgary is called the Bow, B-O-W, not the Bow, but the Bow, the Bow River. And uh, the slaughterhouse had fortuitously shut down just before we got there. Uh, But people told us that the slaughterhouse would start up at sunset, and pretty much around midnight, you could just hear the... (coughs) Boom. So that's another story. But uh, around our building was we, we dug some uh, flower beds and decided that we were going to grow roses and we were going to grow mums, chrysanthemums. These guys? These are actually not chrysanthemums. These are carnations. Um, we were going to grow uh, some pretty flowers and offer them to the Buddha. That was the idea. So in order to... Because the, the, the ground is frozen pretty pretty close to the surface. Um, so in order to get the most out of the time that we had and the soil that we had, somebody said, oh, you gotta get some compost. Put some compost around there, that'll help. So we didn't, we, I like to make compost. We, we have made good compost in years past, not at the moment, but years past. But we didn't have the time to start a compost pile. It kind of takes a season to get it going. So we called around and hey, anybody know where you get some compost? And uh, one one of our uh, lay people was uh, worked at a nursery. He said, "Oh yeah, we do. In fact, you know, if you go out out to what do they call it, Crowfoot Trail, you go out of Crowfoot Trail out to a certain exit and turn right, and there is a mushroom factory." A mushroom factory. Mushrooms are grown in compost. Did you know that? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, mushrooms are grown in compost. Go out there, they have to turn over their compost about every three weeks. They, they can only use it for like one batch of mushrooms, and then according to government regulations, they, they can't reuse it, they've got to throw it away. They have big steaming piles of compost out there ready for people to take away. Wow, that's great. Really? No kidding. Far out? Good. Who's got a truck? So we got a pickup truck. Somebody loaned us a truck. We went out, and sure enough, we threw some shovels in the back and filled the bed of the pickup truck with this wonderful, beautiful, commercial-grade compost. And it was just super, and it had come, they had been growing mushrooms in it. And the mushrooms, it was a, you know, mushrooms grow in very dark, very damp, uh, moldy, you know, spore-filled environments. you just you feel kind of like it's the Hobbit underneath underhill, you know, where they're growing growing the mushrooms. So sure enough, out back was this big pile of discarded compost. You know, take all you want. yeah, can we have some? Sure, please take more. you know OK. So we brought the truck bed load full of compost back to Ramsey to our monastery, shovelled it on the flowers. And uh, sure enough, watered them up, and by July, we had really nice roses. They, they had been started just right, and they were coming up. And so I would go out and you know recite mantras for the roses, just because you can recite mantras, do 108 a day, and you get something to recite and recite the roses. Why not? Just go around the building reciting the roses. And I'm noticing, down below the roses, there's something else, and it's like what's growing here in Calgary like crazy? Like every day I go up and I look down and there's like, it's grown an inch. What is it? We were growing the most fabulous mushrooms that anybody had ever seen. (laughs) Underneath the roses was a whole culture of mushrooms that had come with the compost. (laughs) So we had this huge mushroom harvest that year. Mushroom compost has the spores and it doesn't take much. You water them... (laughs) Up come. The Chinese have this cliche. You hold Chun Sun, you know, the mushrooms grow up after the spring rain. Sure enough, they did. So if you can get a hold of mushroom compost, boy oh boy. And these are guaranteed not poisonous. So anyway. So some things do grow in Calgary by surprise, volunteer mushrooms. So the method, the method for gardeners really matters. And Actually, gardening is a really good way to teach method. So, if you moms or grandmoms have a, a young man or young woman around and you think that they might have the potential to mm, enjoy growing stuff, and most kids I've met are like fascinated if they can actually take them to harvest so they can see something growing. And we grew this, they're so proud. We grew these tomatoes. That's a really good way to teach kids patience and method and the Dharma, how things work, is by teaching them how to garden. You know, because what you have to if you start with hard ground the best, the most magic seeds if you throw them out on hard ground will wither and die. Blow away, you get nothing out of them. But if you take ordinary seeds and put them into ground that you have broken open and then Shoveled down, and if you believe in the French double dip, double digging method, you take the topsoil that you've broken up and set it aside, then dig up the soil below, then replace the topsoil on top. So you've dug, you have double level tilth, they call it t i l t h, and you add your amendments, which are, um, can be, uh, good topsoil or it can be compost and then you take the big chunks and make them small chunks and you water them and so it's really kind of loamy and nice texture and it looks like something could grow there then you drop even ordinary seeds and they go whoosh, they take so that's the first is preparing, preparing the, the earth then you have to put the seeds at the right depth the right distance apart. If they need stakes, you stake them. Um, if they need covering, and one of the secrets in Calgary is every garden has a, has a, a cover. It's got a frame with plastic, and you put that cover down after you watered so that it keeps the, the rare random rogue frost off it. Otherwise, all your work is gone overnight. So gardens will have an actual kind of a greenhouse cover big as this and you put it on hinges and like that so you get it all ready and then water it make sure it gets enough sun and you keep the cats out cats are deadly on gardens cats go in and pee in the garden and there's something about cat urine that's really acid and it doesn't it doesn't help at all kitty 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 stay away from my garden you know and you maybe you fence it to keep the the kids out kids are rude, they don't know what that is, that little green thing that's cute, (coughs) did I help it grow? no, you pulled it up by the roots, you idiot Ah, put it back that's not the way it works so you keep the kids out, keep the cats out and you weed when you need to and put the weeds, give them another life in the compost and you watch this wonderful thing happen which is Nature grows things our earth has this amazing ability to grow things, and you're just kind of there helping it you're watching it happen because you have the fa you got the method you have the Dharma of gardening so how satisfying is that and especially if you can if you have kids who like can do it, give it to them to do it, you just kind of provide the, the, the uh, expertise. So, that's a method. And Master Hua would always say that Dharma is a method. Everything, he said, everything, everything has its method. Eating has a method. Sleeping has a method. Walking has a method. And the method, if you... There's lots of ways to come at it so you get um, a lesson from it. And one of those ways to come at it is to say... There is a theme in all those methods, and it's moderation, middle. So it's the Dharma of avoiding extremes. You stick to the middle. And if it's funny, there are people I remember um, when I had first started to to meditate, I came back to college. Uh, after my junior year, where I lived in Kyoto in a Zen temple, and and uh, I had cut my hair, shaved my head, just while living in this temple, and I was a meditator, and I was I was a Buddhist. I was one of the few Buddhists on my college campus, and I was really kind of ostentatiously Buddhist. I was visibly Buddhist. Wore a black t-shirt, you know, and kind of a Steve Jobs look, and and had you know and without the genius. I, was, I was just had the outside, not the inside. And I had shaved my head and, and I would go around and, and I was a vegetarian at that point. already, 1969. And I went to a, a, a talk. Um, I was a senior now and about to graduate. And I went to a talk at uh, the... Um, it was actually a, a conversation with philosophy majors and artists and... Scientists and I was there to represent Asian studies. So I was there in my Buddhist outfit. You know, If you have an outfit, you can be a Buddhist too. I see by your outfit that you are a Buddhist. Right? So I had the, the external. I had the outside on. So I remember in the conversation there was a Catholic... Um, he was an oblate, he wasn't a priest he was a Catholic oblate, he was coming from the point of view of Catholicism, and I thought oh, he's going to want to probably condemn me for being a Buddhist, not even a Christian, and uh, I was afraid that I was going to get converted, and uh, or, you know, it was going to be an argument a fight about gods, my god is bigger than your god, your god died but mine, you know, mine rose to heaven. And that's not at all, not at all what he said. He didn't come that way at all. What he said was, you know what, I can't stand about you, Bruce. He said, all this stuff about moderation, he said, it's so bloodless. He said, the best thing about life is passion. Passion. How, do you, how can you stand living always just before you feel anything? You always pull back into this moderation, this middle way stuff. He said, I'd rather be dead. In fact, you're already dead, he said. You just, there's never any fun in your life. You Buddhists are just... It's, and furthermore, it's all suffering. It's suffering all the time. It's all suffering all the time with you Buddhists. You know... He said, "What's the what's the point of doing that? You might as well die now." He said, "Like, and I was totally unprepared for this kind of attack, you know, from my Catholic oblate, the Catholic, Catholic layman." And it was kind, it was tough. I was a, you know, I wasn't used to doing more than looking like a Buddhist. I, I didn't, I hadn't even heard about precepts. I'd been a Zen guy, and Zen guys don't talk about precepts. So, it was tough. If somebody asks you... Okay, Alan. Somebody says, you Buddhists are just no fun. What do you say?
1: I would say, <coughs> well, based on your definition, the fun seems to be just based on material stuff. But our fun is without our true mind.
0: Ah. I'm still
1: looking for it, but uh, at least I know that the direction is better. Ah,
0: okay. He probably would have been very upset by your answer, I think. Alan's answer was, he said um, that everything that I hear you say refers to the material world. But Buddhists have fun because we look into what was the, what did you say? Into the true mind. You know, it's like, true mind? Is there a false mind? Are you saying my mind is false? So, yeah, good answer. Uh, anybody else? Okay, let me say. Okay, Vaughn. somebody says to you, you Buddhists never have any fun. What would you say? Well, what is fun? Okay. You
1: know, it's, when, when you talk about fun, the Buddha don't say you need to look
0: within. Mm-hmm. You need
1: to have it within to, uh, fun and joy depends on happiness. Mm-hmm. Come within if you can chase from the external outside, you can
0: chase with the, the the tail because that's real fun. That that's real fun to chase, but then at the end what did you get? Okay, you are you're both troublemakers. You are definitely <laughs> upsetting the apple cart. Truly. And now, so Vaughn's answer was what is fun? Buddhas look within. The Buddha encouraged us to look within. Because after, you've, after the fun finishes, what have you got? Okay, good answer. You know. And both of, both of your answers leave what, what you're saying is not that fun is out there to pursue, and if you don't have fun, you're a loser, which is what the culture tells you. Instead, you're saying, if you really want to have fun, look within, try it out. And there's this invitation to... It's, it seems like you've opened a door with those answers, because anybody can. You know, there's, there's no... It's You know, those are both good answers. And I honestly, I don't remember what I told him, but I do remember being flustered by his question. And if I had, had my wits about me, I would have said, so, you're afraid that Buddhists' life is, has no passion you might be right. We've transcended passion and, and turned it into compassion. <laughs> right? Oh, <laughs> so that, but that's a cheap answer because it's not. There's no particular relation between passion and compassion.
1: I? It depends, you know. For me, I'm working, you know, with people. Do you deal with your friends. Nobody asked me that kind of question. You know. mm-hmm. Even I take them to go to the restaurant, actually looking for a vegetarian for me, even they eat meat, but they still nobody asked me that
0: kind of question. Uh-huh. Nobody came oh, you know, in, Right. People, kind of so it's, but it's, you know, I mean, seriously now, it's a really good question because here is a man, he's a religious man, He's a Catholic layman. He's you know, he, he speaks he, he can do a certain number of the sacraments, and he's a really good jishu, you know, he's a he's a layman within the Catholic Church. And yet for him, what matters the most in his life so much that he would dare say this in a public forum to a Buddhist, that passion is the most important thing. And in his in his question I heard behind him saying things like Oh, uh, let's look at Beethoven, right? Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. It's, that music is loud and stirring and it touches your soul. And I think he considers that only somebody who is moved by that can enjoy it, can appreciate it. What is passion? Passion for him, as I heard it meant anger. Being able to get angry and really get angry without feeling feeling like you're guilty. Breaking the the teachings of your faith. Um, Rage. Lust. That's all passion. Not moderation. And on the surface who would be an example of passion? Well, let's look at 007. Okay, probably people know, right? James Bond. He's, there's a new Bond movie coming out, apparently. They're good. And it's, Ian Fleming didn't write it. They're, they, they've gone beyond all the Ian Fleming, the original James Bond author. They're writing new books so they can make new movies. James Bond is who? Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. right? So with kiss, kiss, bang, bang, is passion. You know, you, you see a beautiful girl and immediately you want to kiss, kiss. You see anybody who's you know looks at you the wrong way, you can bang bang. And I mean passion, nothing like killing somebody for passion, right? So the idea is the culture the culture celebrates people who go beyond the normal boundaries. We will watch that as entertainment because mostly our lives are pretty ho hung. Our lives are pretty ordinary, pretty vanilla most of the time. we got to get up in the morning to go to work, so we can't really get super drunk tonight and let it all hang out because we'll pay the price. We might drive off the road. We, you know, there's lots of laws that keep us from, from indulging passion. But in, in this, this gentleman's question, he was saying you Buddhists don't enjoy your life. Because you always bring it back to the middle. He made the middle the same thing in his mind as no fun. Right? It's no fun. It's boring. The middle way is boring. And what he said was, "He'd rather be dead because you can't even feel things with your senses." Now, um, the Buddhists I have met, who have done, who have lived the middle way, walked the middle way for a lifetime, are some of the happiest, freest people I know. The, the real Buddhists who I've met, not, not like most of us who are just kind of trying it out with one toe in the water or one foot, people who've really put their hearts into following the middle way and avoiding extremes are people who, number one, know themselves because they've seen more deeply into their minds. What happens when you avoid extremes and practice the middle way you can see to the bottom of your mind because there aren't so many waves on the water. What happens when you follow passion? Your mind is like a storm. The waves go up and the waves go down and your ship is tossed here and there. Every now and then it tosses on the rocks. Right? What's the, what's the, the Buddhist phrase? 起火造業收火爆 you get deluded. You allow delusion, i.e. passion, to rise. You yet you create karma. You do things you regret, you about. Then comes the retribution. The problem with passion, if it's passion without moderation, is that you lose your wisdom. It's hard to be passionate and see clearly. Master Yang says... Uh, As soon as emotion arises, wisdom is cut off. Wisdom arises out of emotion transformed. So passion is the source of wisdom and compassion. But passion itself is future wisdom. It's not wisdom. So if you have ever wanted to see deeply in your mind... And understood clearly. If you want to understand the way the world is, you have to make your life like this instead of like this. Um, How do you do it? Well, if you haven't, if you're not meditating, if you're not actually cultivating, it's going to be artificial. If you hold yourself back until Just because I'm being a good Buddhist and I'm not having any fun, that's artificial. You're holding it; it's all bitter for you, and it won't last because it's muscle strength holding you back. It's it's what is it? It's coercion. It's repression instead of transformation. What you in order to to understand the difference between passion and compassion? If you sat still long enough until you got the flavor of the Dharma, you will spontaneously move towards calming your six senses. How do you know it's passion? Your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body, by and large, and mind are experiencing an impact on the senses. So what you drink, half a bottle of single malt scotch, and... You're really soused. You're really drunk. And it takes you a while. You got a huge hangover the next day if you made it home because you drank passionately, right? Instead of tasting it. So the way that people move from passion to compassion is because they sat there or they bowed or they held the precepts until they noticed something. Which is what? I see further than I ever saw before. I looked at the person sitting across the breakfast table from me, and I knew what they were saying. I got it. I saw into my spouse's soul. I understood my kids the way I never had before. Why? Because my meditation started to work. Then you go, hey, how do I take that the next step? And the answer is Moderation cut back on things that you love listening to to extremes. Cut back on things you love to look at to extremes. Cut back on the the flavors and the smells and the the tactile because why your meditation comes alive. The more you do, pretty soon something opens up inside and you realize just like we heard from, from Alan and from Bonnie, that There is a life inside that is waiting for you to walk through the door. Which door do you walk through? The door of moderation. As much as Master Hua would say, as much of the outside world as you can put down, that's how much of the proper Dharma you can pick up. Not easy to do because... You need friends around you to show you that there's real flavor there. And you also have to experience it yourself. But if you have Dharma friends who encourage you, who model it for you, and then you do the work until you actually feel a change inside, you'll get it. There'll be this flavor and something opens up. Then you are led by your own experience deeper into the Dharma And the calmer and quieter you make your outside world, the more fruitful, flavorful, rewarding the inside. And my Catholic debate partner, I don't think it had that experience. I think he was still operating only at the end of his senses. And of course the problem is, once you've had some passionate experience... You have to up the ante. It has to be more passionate next time for you to feel it because definitely the senses get, it gets numb after a while. Same old, same old. Let's do something a little different tonight. Let's try a different restaurant tonight. Something a little different. You always have to kind of escalate before you can feel it. Anybody who's smoked dope knows that. Pretty soon, after a while, plain old marijuana just becomes not so interesting. I think I'd like to try some hashish. Whoa, I got some good hash, man. Try some hashish. After a while, hey, how about some mescaline? Oh, that's, you got some mescaline? Yeah, how about that? Wow, well, neat. Want to try some heroin? Mm. Trouble. It's true. They, they talk about marijuana being a gateway drug. It is. It definitely is. the way alcohol is also a gateway drug. The way smoking is a gateway drug. Right, you try a little bit, and then hey, what's? I can't taste that anymore. I can't feel it up the ante, because why? That's the way the senses are; they get grooved into this this uh, what uh, plateau, and in order to feel it, you always have to escalate. Once you and the one more thing about that is you're manipulating externals. You're always chasing something outside. Once you don't get that little escalation, there's a lot of frustration. Unsatisfied passion? What happens to unsatisfied passion? Well, every soap opera on TV has to do with unsatisfied passion. Every novel, every movie. You know, crime, disasters, unsatisfied passion. So there's a major flaw in my Catholic friends' critique is, you know, passion is lovely, the passion of, of uh, uh, love stories, okay, sweet romance comedies, movies starring your favorite movie star, right? and Jennifer Aniston is starring in some flick and... You know, and it's all happy. You know, you know, it's, you know how it's going to turn out. Well, there's a little bit of passion in there. That's great, but when it's in your life and passion is unsatisfied, which so often it is, there's major affliction, greed, anger, delusion, delusion, karma, retribution. That's a problem. Right? So his model of unpassionate. Lack of passion Buddhists are people who tend to... Whose spiritual life keeps unfolding deeper and deeper the more it goes from passion to wisdom. So, anyway, that's you understand the point I'm making. When you get that flavor of the treasures of wisdom awaiting inside, mm, things fall away. What I've noticed is... Um, people tend to back off the hot sauce on their pho, right? A few guys, guys who who are, you know, just coming to the Dharma for the first time. If I see on on a Saturday morning lots of newcomers who are kind of, you know, digging into their pho, first of all, the pho doesn't have beef in it. Our pho is vegetarian pho, so there's something missing. It's not quite, well, it's Buddhist pho, you know. (laughs) No, okay, well... uh, But if I bring out the hot sauce bottle, Louisiana hot sauce, and set it down on the table, I go, I set it down in front of myself, and then I open the lid. So it's kind of, I've opened it already. And then I go, pass it down, and then pass it down. And I watch these guys going... (laughs) You know? (sighs) I taste it, you know, I can taste it doesn't have the beef in there but at least it registers well hot sauce is great if you like hot sauce but guaranteed if you don't have hot sauce it's something missing coffee is the same oh my take coffee away after you've been addicted to coffee something's missing and there's a couple weeks when there's in the morning I I thought what is going to hit that spot because you've impacted your tongue, flavor, the desire for flavor, and, and nose, to a certain point where you, without that you are not free. There's, something is missing. So there's passion. Same principle. And does that impact your meditation? You bet it does. Sitting there quietly thinking about coffee. Thinking about hot right? sauce. Thinking about loud music. Or things you like to look at. So, that's the problem with passion. Now, back to the lecture. What is the Dharma? The Dharma says, every bit of external that you can set down, that's how much world-transcending proper Dharma you can pick up. And, converse, also true. Every bit of worldly Dharma that we need before we are happy, that's how much world-transcending Buddha Dharma we will not be able to Grasp or experience. So, now, that being said, you know, not to challenge people to go putting things down. We're going to put this down now. It's not the way it works. It has to be yours and it has to be organic. Say, uh, gee, you know, how can those people recite the Buddha's name for eight hours walking around the room? Well, you can try it. Try it. Set aside that time. Turn off your text machine. Got to turn it off, right? No texts while you're reciting the Buddha's name. Then you turn off the text machine inside. just thinking about who's texting you while you're reciting the Buddha's name. Okay, bit by bit, you try that and see what happens. And there's this sense of, wow, I've been somewhere. Although I was walking around that little room didn't go even go outside, I've been away. This is better than the vacation I took to the Pinnacles where I had to get in traffic and there wasn't a reservation. They got my reservation wrong and I wound up in a motel somewhere outside of Salinas and it was a wasted weekend. You know. So, yeah, amazing. And once you get that flavor inside, then it's really yours. And the middle way becomes the door that you go through to transforming your senses. And passion actually turns to wisdom. And you realize that they are not two things. They are back of the hand and the palm of the hand. Without passion there is no wisdom. Without affliction there is no bodhi. But you have to turn it. How do you turn it? Fa, a method. You find a method. There's a lot of them. And not everybody's method is going to be the same. So, what did Sheru say? He said there are 84,000 fa because there are 84,000 afflictions, 84,000 passions. Passions that don't get satisfied. So, nothing wrong with passion, right? The Buddha is not anti-passion at all. And that's where the Catholic, if, if he'd given me a chance, if I'd been able to say it, of course, I wasn't able to say it then. But it's not that the Buddha doesn't like passion. The Buddha was a prince. Give me a break. How did the prince live? The prince had every passion, things he can't even dream of. can't even imagine the kind of passion available to a prince of India heading to be king. You know. And yet he realized that, how does Jack Cornfield say it? after the ecstasy the laundry right so you got to wash the sheets in the morning okay well that's passion and the laundry Somebody got to do it so if you can transform that passion and say yeah passion's I've tasted it I know what it is and it scatters it scatters and you're back to zero you start over. What about compassion? It's endless. And it builds. Compassion never retreats. It doesn't go back to zero. You just regather scattered pieces of your nature. That you see in all living things. And the more compassion you practice. The more wisdom you practice. The more of your true self you reconnect to. So it's wisdom and compassion increases. Passion and ecstasy scatters, decreases and you wind up with less. And at a certain point you die. I think that was the Buddha's awareness was that following passion being number one king killing all the enemies and having a million concubines and children he's going to wind up old, sick, and finally did. So, there's your passion. How many passionate 80-year-olds are there who think, Boy, I have a lifetime of passion. I'm happy to die now. No. <laughs> it's really worth it. Okay, passion's good, but is that all? So, you get the point. So, the Dharma is how it's methods. It's techniques. Um, the, there is one definition of the word fa in Chinese, which is like a mold, like a cookie cutter mold. Gingerbread man. You start with the dough, take the gingerbread man mold, and go, boom. You ever do that? Does your mom make cookies with you, teach you how to make gingerbread man? We had a gingerbread man mold at home, and it was only this time of year when it came out. And it was it was fun, you know, you make the, the dough and a and little ball and plop it down, roll out the pin, rolling pin, with flour. You ever do that? Rolling pin? If your brother was around and she wasn't looking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then you take them all and you go boom and you have a nice gingerbread man. And you take the sprinkles and you put the sprinkles and the, the red Red hots, remember the red hots? They were, put them there in the eyes and stuff. Gingerbread man. So, this is the time of year. And every gingerbread man looks the same. They all look alike, because it's a mold. Right? And the Dharma, Fa, one translation in Chinese is mold. M O U L D, not mold that grows on the wall. But mold meaning form. And the thing about the molds is too much and too little, both don't fit the mold. You have to, the the mold makes perfect. Here's the thing about the Dharma. Um, Listening to Master Hua explain it, it was a real revelation because he would talk about the mold as a living thing. The Dharma was a living thing. If you overshoot it, it's just as wrong and as Bad cultivation as underdoing it. You go wrong two different ways. Too much and too little. both don't get it. And my problem, uh, as I learned from, from Sherfu, was, usually wanting it so bad, I would choke myself, demanding I would to get the Dharma, forcing myself to get the Dharma. Now and beat myself up when it didn't happen overnight. And that's wrong. That's the same as lazy. So he would often uh, say to me, you know, breathe. Breathe. And you're not going to get it overnight. That's just greed, he would say. I remember... uh, when I first started to talk again after six years of not speaking, I the last uh, two years I was in Calgary, <laughs> growing mushrooms and roses, and uh, came back to San Francisco, and I I had been you know uh, in this monastery pretty isolated, came back to San Francisco and San Francisco and Calgary at the time this was in the eighties were pretty far apart. Calgary conservative Canadian town, Alberta. And I remember landing in the San Francisco Airport, and here was uh Sherfield. He was going somewhere as so we were sending him off. And I was looking around, and now I was able to talk. And what was what was hip? Goth was hip. Goth styles. You know, black eyeliner and piercings and you know, everywhere and Doc Martin boots and Metal, chains, and studs going up your legs, and, and guys and girls, both. And I was like, a spark, spiky hair, and you know, and and I was like, ah, oh, what ah, oh, you know. And I said to Sherfu, Sherfu, wow, look at, I, you know, this looks like I've I've come into the hells here, Sherfu. And Sherfu looked at me and this He said, do you think bodhisattvas only save the good ones? He said, every house has a toilet. Flush your toilet, he said. And I was like, I know that was profound, but what did I just hear? (laughs) Every house has a toilet. Flush. Do I think bodhisattvas only save the good ones? You know, it's like, Okay. And you know, then he said, Do you know where I think I am all the time? No sure where. In the Western land of ultimate bliss, he said. And that was that. And it was like, oh. So in other words, I had set myself up as a standard of purity from which to judge everybody else living beings as being polluted and dirty and fallen and hell-like, hell beings, like. So in a very skillful, compassionate way, Scherf was slapped me up the side of the head, you know. Said, Okay, you think you're so special and pure? Every house has a toilet. Flush your toilet. I'm clinging to my turds instead of flushing them away. And I thought I was in the hells. I was, what, looking for praise. I thought Sherpa was going to praise me for being so pure and noticing that everything here was wrong, you know. <laughs> style, Goth styles. I'd never seen Goth styles. And sure enough, he did not. Sherpa did not praise me for being a pure disciple. He slapped me up the side. He said, flush your toilet. You think you're in the hells. I think I'm in the pure land all the time. How about you? Bodhisattvas don't only save the good ones. That's ridiculous. Bodhisattvas teach and transform living beings wherever they are. So, that was a really skillful answer. And so, you know, the bodhisattva is always aiming for the middle. In the middle, you what? You match the form. You become a, what? A gingerbread man that is not over the, the cookie cutter, and not missing an arm or a leg. You're perfect in the form, but here's the difference. And you think, well, I don't want to be like it. Isn't that just like being a you know, a man in the gray flannel suit, little boxes, ticky-tacky? Who wants to be like a gingerbread? The point of it is, these forms actually exist in our nature, but we never match them. What are the dharma forms? Buddha's bodhisattvas, arhats, sages. They are the the true nature's form without the overlay of self and what belongs to the self. Without the overlay of duality, love and hate, me and mine, discrimination, Right? The forms that the Dharma point us to are the actual forms of our nature. Wise, compassionate, full of virtue, benefiting, <coughs> kind. Right, That's what these forms take us back to. They're not random forms. The forms of the, the molds of the Dharmas. When we put ourselves in a Dharma mold, let's say bowing, let's say meditating, Let's say walking meditation. Let's say uh, giving. If we do it to paramita, to bolo mi, dao bi an, to the other shore, to perfection, paramita is perfection, right? If we do those forms to perfection, we take the raw material of body, mouth, and mind and transform it into... Precepts, concentration, and wisdom. Those are forms. They're dharmas. That's a whole other way to look at dharmas. These are profound forms, molds, not gingerbread men, but the forms of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas made out of the cookie-cutter dough of our nature that is not yet formed. So you take shen xin xin ming, body, mind, nature, and life, which is the dough, right? That's the dough that turns into cookies. And you put a form, a Dharma mold over that, and you match it perfectly, not too much, not too little, and you bake it, and what happens? Living beings become Buddhists. That's how it works. And you do it to perfection. Not too much, not too little, reaching the other shore. So, see this word dharma has a profound level to it, which is the notion that somehow in our nature, it's not random. Where, where does the sutra come from? Where does an arhat come from? An arhat is in there, right in your nature, right in my nature, right this minute, but we have to hold the form, i.e. Vinya dharma. Precepts, essentially, until we bake. Until we take the random outflowing me and mine and transform it into a connected us and them. A compassionate mold. And over time, it works. How long do you bake? Heat the oven to 425 and 30 minutes until done, poke them by the fork. No, how long does it take in your meditation to go from ignorance to wisdom? Good question. And the answer would be: depends on the what you brought to it in this life. Some people can do it in a hurry. But it's not really in a hurry, it's that they, when they were born, they had the blessings and the potential and the conditions to meet the Dharma and practice it. Wouldn't it be nice if we got to leave home when we were 12 years old, before puberty hits and, and we start thinking about boys and girls? Wouldn't that be lovely? Um, of course, everybody is different. Um, I left home at age 24 and I had done pretty much every bad thing there, that was available to me to do. <laughs> Before I, got, before I met my teacher. And uh, gave me plenty to, to repent of, for sure. Um, so how long does it take to bake in the mold of the Dharma before you come up with the arhat that you can become? Good question. Good question. And uh, I remember in the middle of a Chan retreat, uh, Master Hua would, uh, in, in the Chan tradition coming right up in another week at CTDB, when you do a chan retreat master hua would always give these chan dharma talks and that's where you hear these teachings most uh, unadorned they're raw that's why people love the chan school because these teachings are right out there and there's the other he he would say okay all of you he would say really be vigorous you want to raise up your energy. He would say climb to the top of the 100 foot pole and take one more step. What? That sounds really compelling. What if I fall off? (laughs) And, And I'd say Shifu, as you're climbing up to the top of the 100 foot pole how tightly do you have to hang on? And he would say just hard enough to not fall off. You don't want to choke it in a death grip because you won't get there. So, Connie. What's the difference between um, being very vigorous and going to an extreme? Ajahn What's, mm-hmm. What's the first thought? Look at the mind. Are you getting depressed or uptight? If so, the answer is, too much. That's basically it. Another, what's the difference? Okay, question, what's the difference between being really vigorous and going too far? Um, Some people cultivate to the point of getting afflicted. What does that mean? It means they cultivate until they wind up more uptight, upset, angry, frustrated than they were before they began the practice. That's what it means to be afflicted. If your dharma practice becomes a source of affliction, that's that's too tight. That's an extreme. What do you do next? Back off. Quit what you're doing. Quit what you're doing. Yeah, quit getting afflicted. Yeah, back off. Switch your practice. There are 84,000 ways of practice. Okay, here's here's what I'm going to tell you. We have right in the founding story, perfect example, the Buddha decided he was going to fast his way to enlightenment. So he stopped eating. Except... You know, grain of rice and a sesame seed. And he nearly died. And he had enough wisdom that he could say, hey, this is not working. And there's a really, really good lesson for us in that basic story, which is our founding teacher admitted a mistake. He said, this is a dead end. I'm going to quit This. So he quit fasting and did what? Ate like a normal person. Connie. (laughs) Ate like a normal person. And guess what? Got enlightened. (gasps) Right? How boring to just eat like a normal person. (laughs) It's much more passionate to like fast until I can feel something. You know. It seems like nothing... But it's not nothing. Because why? Because you're applying a method. That's the difference. Uh, Shriva would say, you know what the flavor of the Dharma is? The flavor of the Dharma is kai shrei, jubai cai. Is boiled water, cabbage in boiling water. What does boiled cabbage taste like? Hot cabbage. <laughs> not much. You know, what's the flavor? cabbage, add a little bit of salt <laughs> you know, no flavor the flavor of cultivation is not much flavor pretty plain, it's plain to the tongue, but as soon as you turn your senses back you notice that you have not rushed out your tongue to search for flavor and finding none, get afflicted cabbage, boiled cabbage fills your belly just great, and you want to meditate no. so that's does that make sense Connie? the the question what is extreme vigor and what is too much what is very very vigor when does very, very vigorous become extreme is if you when you're done with your practice, you have to go out and do something to compensate for what you didn't do like I've, now I practice my I practice my fasting and I'm hungry as can be. You know, <laughs> everything I look at looks like food. You know, and you're like, eh, too much. The, what the result of that is? What you're thinking of food all the time. I know because I have been through that one. And if so, eat enough the way you add gasoline to the gas tank. Put enough gas in the car to drive where you're going and then get out of the car, lock it and walk away. And go do what you, what you drove to do. Eat enough to fuel your body so that you can meditate and look at the mind. And that's what you're, you know. The body is a car to get you to the mind. You need to fuel it with food. A car is a vehicle to get you to a destination so you can do what you're going to do. Go to school, go to work go home so the result of excessive fasting is you're thinking about food all the time food becomes huge instead of just gasoline for the car so that's one way to look as soon as like Ajahn Guna says you know as soon as you are afflicted as soon as you're depressed thinking this is such a bummer I'm never going to get there that's, you've lost the middle way. Okay? So that's, that's a really good question. And so, the Dharma. Ten times we get that word. He loves the Dharma. Ten times. Because he connects that. Learning this is going to take people out of the search for deeper and deeper flavors of passion into an awareness of the thing that is experiencing passion, which is the real search. It's not, am I having enough passion? The question is, who is in there? Seeking passion, experiencing passion. What is the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind experiencing sight, sound, smells, taste, sensation of to touch and dharma? And in between... What is in between the organ and the experience? That's interesting. That's a door to the mind right there. And the Dharma is the door you go through to discover not only the sense organ and the sense object, but the consciousness that's telling the difference. I mean, the Catholic priest, the Catholic oblate, He's missing that whole experience in pursuing more and more passion, more and more passion, till he burns out. I mean, what is, what's that experience when passion suddenly subsides? Something in there is telling a difference. That's fascinating. There is the holy. That's the sacred. That's where you see the face of God, right there. Okay. This is how the Bodhisattva diligently seeks the Buddha Dharma. Okay, we're going to continue there next week. Let's transfer the merit. In the Philippines, there has been severe flooding. Um, I read that it's, they said these bodies, you know, it's a very Catholic part of the world, uh, these bodies piled up in the morgues and they went to identify them and nobody claimed nobody came to claim the bodies you know why? entire families were drowned families were wiped out there was rains and it just whoosh, came down the mountains and washed these villages entire villages got flooded so this happened yesterday in the Philippines and they said there was no no survivors to come claim the bodies the entire clan was gone so yet another Disaster. In the um, on the green sheet there is dedication to marriage.